Section 3 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Benjamin Whichcote, Reason and Religion, Part 1. The name of Whichcote is barely known in the history of English theology. Burnett's notice is quoted occasionally. Footnote. History of His Own Times, Volume 1, pages 339-340. End of footnote. But beyond this, little is understood either of the character or writings of one who was among the most influential preachers and theologians of his age, an age in which both preaching and theology still exercised a real influence on all the affairs of national life. Whichcote not only possessed great credit with the most eminent statesmen of the commonwealth, but he was probably, during this important period, the teacher who, more than any other at Cambridge, impressed his own mode of thought both upon his colleagues in the university and the rising generation of students. Tillotson, Patrick, and Burnett all look back to him as a truly memorable man, whose whole life and studies were devoted to the most elevating objects, and who set the thoughts of the young in a new and higher direction. In a true sense, he may be said to have founded the new school of philosophical theology, although it is chiefly known by the more elaborate writings of others. Like many eminent teachers, his personality and the general force of his mental character were obviously greater than his intellectual productiveness. A few volumes of sermons are nearly all that survive of his labors to help us to understand them. Yet his sermons, comparatively neglected as they have been, are amongst the most thoughtful in the English language, pregnant with meaning, not only for his own but for all time. It is strange that he should have been so little known and studied but the obscurity which has overtaken him is not without some relation to his very greatness, and the silent way in which he passed out of sight at the Restoration after he had done his work at Cambridge. There are some kinds of influence which perish in their very fruitfulness, as the seed dies and wastes away at the root of the ripening grain. Whichcote's influence was of this kind. He was careless of his own name, providing the higher thoughts for which he cared were found bearing fruit. He possessed that highest magnanimity of all, a magnanimity extremely rare, of forgetting himself in the cause which he loved, and rejoicing that others entered into the results for which he labored. It is all the more necessary, therefore, that we should endeavor to do some degree of justice to his name and opinions, to bring before us as complete an image as we can of the man and of his academic and theological activity. Standing as he does at the fountainhead of our school of thinkers, it is especially important to catch the spirit of his teaching and to present it in its full historical and intellectual relations. Benjamin Whichcote was born of an ancient and honorable family in the county of Shropshire in the spring of 1609-10. The exact date of his birth is given as March 11th. His father was apparently a country squire, the owner of Whichcote Hall. His mother was of the same rank of life, being the daughter of Edward Fox, Esquire of Greet, in the same county. Footnote. Preface by Dr. Salter, Prebendary of Norwich, to Whichcote and Tuckney's Correspondence, published in 1753. To this preface, and to Whichcote's own letters, and, of course, Tillotson's and Burnett's notices, we are indebted for the facts of his life and the course of formation of his opinions. Tillotson preached Whichcote's funeral sermon in 1683. I do not know of any other sources of information beyond the biographical dictionaries. There is a story as to Whichcote's manuscripts and how they came into Dr. Salter's hands, which will be told in the sequel. End of footnote.
he was sent to Emmanuel College, Cambridge, in 1626. Of his previous life, or the training of his boyhood, we know nothing. His tutor at Emmanuel was Mr. Antony Tuckney, the correspondent of his later years, of whom we shall learn more immediately. Tuckney was about ten years older than himself, and had passed a very distinguished academic career. He had been chosen fellow of his college when only twenty years of age, and after a brief interval of residence in a noble family, had returned to Cambridge and acquired special distinction as a tutor at Emmanuel. This well-known college owed its foundation to Sir Walter Mildmay, in the reign of Elizabeth, 1584, and was designed for the special encouragement of Calvinistic theology. Sir Walter was Elizabeth's Chancellor of the Exchequer for a lengthened period, from 1566 to 1589. He is described by Fuller as a statesman of rare integrity, zealous to advance the Queen's treasure, and yet conscionably without wronging the subject, as a man of learning and deep and earnest convictions. Sympathizing with the more decided Protestantism of the time, on which his mistress looked coldly, he devoted his means to its encouragement. The conversation betwixt the Queen and him on the subject related by Fuller is in all respects creditable to the Chancellor, to his wise tact no less than to his zeal. The Queen is said to have addressed him one day, Sir Walter, I hear you have erected a Puritan foundation. No, madam, was his reply, quote, far be it from me to countenance anything contrary to your established laws, but I have set an acorn which, when it becomes an oak, God alone knows what will be the fruit thereof. Whichcote took his degree of B.A. in 1629 and of M.A. in 1633, and in the latter year became fellow of his college. In 1636 he was ordained both deacon and priest by Williams, Bishop of Lincoln, an irregularity for which his biographer is unable to account. During the eventful years which followed, he appears to have busied himself with pupils at the university till 1643, when he was presented by his college to the living of North Cadbury in Somersetshire. There he is supposed to have married and begun to settle himself, when in the following year he was recalled to Cambridge to succeed Dr. Collins, who had been ejected by the Parliament from the provostship of King's College. It appears to have been a grave perplexity to Whichcote whether or not he should accept this preferment. The idea of superseding a man whom he greatly respected, and whom he must have held to be wrongfully deprived of his office, was distasteful to his mind. He weighed anxiously the whole business, and the reasons for and against it, and even drew them out in writing for his guidance, but at length consented to accept the office, under condition of continuing to Dr. Collins one half of the salary payable to the provost from the college revenues. Footnote. Salter, Biographical Preface, page 18. A schedule giving the heads of such reasons, pro and con, was found amongst his papers after his death. End of footnote. He acted wisely, but the step was one which he was not allowed to forget at the Restoration, and even Tillotson remembers it apologetically in his funeral sermon. Tillotson adds at the same time that Whichcote did not stoop to do anything unworthy to obtain the place, for he never took the covenant. Not only so, but by the friendship and interest he had with some of the chief visitors, Quote, he prevailed to have the greatest part of the fellows of King's College exempted from that imposition and preserved them in their places. It may be inferred from this promotion, as also from his training at Emmanuel College, that Whichcote had grown up amongst Puritans, and that his relatives and friends belonged to that party. 
Whether he himself had ever professed Puritan tenets, it is impossible to say. In his early years he probably fell in with the tone of his college. Nor is there any reason to believe that up to this time he had attracted notice by any singularity of opinion. In his first letter to Tuckney, in 1651, he says, quote, I do not, I cannot, forget my four first years' education in the university under you, and I think I have principles by me I then received from you. Close quote. In the same letter, however, he also indicates that some of the opinions to which Tuckney objected had been long entertained by him, so long back as when he disputed in the college chapel. The fact appears to be that Whichcote was from the first a thoughtful and independent student in religious matters. Whatever may have been his early associations or upbringing, his mind sought its own path. He was but little indebted to books, he distinctly asserts, when accused by Tuckney of borrowing his views from the Dutch Arminians and other special sources. Quote, you say you find me largely in their apologia. To my knowledge, I never saw nor heard of the book before. A singular enough confession. I shame myself to tell you how little I have been acquainted with books. While fellow at Emmanuel College, employment with pupils took my time from me. I have not read many books, but I have studied a few. Meditation and invention hath been rather my life than reading. Quote. Slowly forming his opinions in this manner, and carefully testing them, Rejecting whatever was not underpropped by convincing reason or satisfactory scripture, he would not be ready to break the ties of circumstance which bound him. The most thoughtful and meditative minds are often the most reluctant to separate from old associations and surroundings. Hales remained strongly attached to the high church side in the civil struggle, and Chillingworth also, long after they had unlearned every dogmatic principle on which high churchism rests and Whichcote doubtless remained among the Puritans, and was reckoned on their side from similar accidents of personal connection and training, although he never imbibed their spirit, and seems from the first to have rejected their doctrinal narrowness. The quick eye of Tuckney had seen the growing independence of his pupil, and his tendency to freedom and originality. I loved you, he says, in allusion to their early connection at Emmanuel, quote, as finding you then studious and pious, and very loving and observant of me. But I remember I then thought you somewhat cloudy and obscure in your expressions. The mind of the pupil, notwithstanding his affectionate respect for his teacher, was evidently, even in these years, on a different track. He seems to have taken a larger and more philosophic view of religious questions, and given them different turns of expression. And dogmatic Puritanism has always been jealous of new modes of expression. It tolerates fundamental opposition almost as readily as phraseological differences. Cloudiness and obscurity are to this day the favorite terms by which it designates all attempts to freshen or remold the language of theology. The date of Whichcote's appointment as Provost of Kings, 1644, may be said to mark the rise of the new philosophical and religious movement at Cambridge. Not for some while after this, indeed, did it attain significance and general intellectual interest but from the time that he was placed in this position of authority, Whichcote seems to have become a power in the university, and gradually it was felt that there was a new life, other than Puritan or Anglo-Catholic, moving the academic mind. A nobler, freer, and more generous set of opinions began to prevail, especially among the young masters of art, to the no small alarm of the older authorities, who remained fixed in their dogmatic opinions. The chief instrument of this new movement, as of the older religious spirit which had so stirred and changed the country, was preaching. 
it was as afternoon lecturer in trinity church that whichcote spread his views and kindled that fervor for a rational christianity which was destined to have such enduring effects the correspondence with tuckney helps us in some degree to understand the growth of the movement footnote this correspondence as will be afterwards explained was first published in seventeen fifty three edited by dr salter prebendary of norwich End of footnote. we could have wished further information but at least we can trace in these letters the diverse forces at work and the odd mingling of personal and theological influences with the deeper currents of thought which were to leave their impression upon the mind of future generations the aim of the puritan authorities in sixteen forty four was of course to promote the cause so dear to them and to remodel the universities after their own mind whichcote's appointment to be provost of kings was only one of numerous appointments which they made at the time with the same intention and his position and the movement which he initiated will be best understood in relation to the men who surrounded him and with whom it was no doubt expected he would cordially cooperate there are three names especially associated with his own tuckney formerly his tutor who was made master of emmanuel and arrowsmith and hill who were placed respectively at the head of st john's and of trinity thus says dr salter quote, four very intimate friends after a separation of some years save that the three last met in the assembly of divines at westminster saw each other again in the several most honorable stations of the university to which their learning and piety had deservedly recommended them tuckney the oldest of the four had already acquired distinction as a tutor at emmanuel where he had many persons of rank and quality admitted under him he was quote, a man of great reading and much knowledge a ready and elegant latinist but narrow stiff and dogmatical no enemy to the royal or episcopal power as it should seem but above measure zealous for church power and ecclesiastical discipline he was in short a doctrinal puritan as his letters fully show of a somewhat extreme type equally opposed to papists arminians and independents all of whom he attacks vigorously in the same breath some idea of his dogmatic fierceness may be gathered from his strong denunciation of milton on the subject of divorce whom he calls infamis et non uno laqueo dignus he is said to have taken an active part in the dogmatic work of the westminster assembly of divines and particularly to have drawn the exposition of the commandments in the larger catechism of his ability there seems no question as he was unanimously chosen in vito et pene coactus he himself says to fill the chair of Regius Professor of Divinity on the resignation of Arrowsmith in 1655. While stoutly dogmatical in his own views, he seems to have been by no means a bigot practically. He voted in the assembly against subserving or swearing to the confession, and in his elections at St. John's, to which he was promoted from Emmanuel, quote, when the president, according to the cant of the times, would call upon him to have regard to the godly, he would answer, no one should have a greater regard to the godly than himself but he was determined to choose none but scholars adding very wisely they may deceive me in their godliness they cannot in their scholarship this story of him so much to his honor is still upon record in the college so says dr salter in seventeen fifty three and the story is one evidently characteristic and deserving of preservation tuckney was plainly a man of shrewdness and insight as well as learning and zeal and no unworthy antagonist of his distinguished pupil his letters reveal very much the same qualities that salter describes 
they are narrow and deficient in sympathy and elevation but they are terse well reasoned and keep closely to the subject from his own point of view hill was also a student at emmanuel where he was admitted in sixteen eighteen about the same time as tuckney like him he had worked for some time with the famous mr john cotton vicar of boston a very zealous nonconformist who afterwards emigrated to new england he spent some good time with this puritan worthy as many other zealous young men of the time seem to have done for his further perfecting and the more happy seasoning of his spirit he appears to have excelled as a preacher having been appointed during the sitting of the westminster assembly to preach often before the house of commons on solemn occasions as public fast days and also chosen one of their morning weekday preachers at the abbey on his promotion to the headship of trinity college he set up two lectures in the town of cambridge one of which he supplied himself altogether and was much resorted to he printed only a few sermons which are now little known or inquired after and at the time of his death in sixteen fifty three he had made fair progress says tuckney who preached his funeral sermon quote, in a learned confutation of the great daring champion of the arminian errors whom the abusive wits of the university with an impudent boldness would say none there durst adventure upon Close quote. the great daring champion of the arminian errors was john goodwin who had dedicated two years before his volume entitled redemption redeemed to whichcote as vice-chancellor along with the other heads of houses at cambridge john arrowsmith was the only one of the four not educated at emmanuel he was admitted at st john's college in sixteen sixteen afterwards he was chosen fellow of catherine hall but seems to have retired early from the university and settled at lynn in norfolk where he continued very much esteemed some ten or twelve years he preceded tuckney in the regius professorship of divinity the duties of which he discharged with ability but he seems to have been chiefly remembered for his sweet and admirable temper he was says salter quote, like his friends tuckney and hill a very learned and able but a stiff and narrow divine was like them offended with the popularity and credit of dr whichcote for though they all respected and loved his person they could none of them bear with his freedom but arrowsmith's natural temper was superior to all his prejudices and he is represented by both sides as a man of a most sweet and engaging disposition this appears through all the sourness and severity of his opinions in his tactica sacra a book quote, written in a clear style and with a lively fancy in which is displayed at once much weakness and stiffness but withal great reading and a very amiable candor to the persons and characters of those from whom he found himself obliged to differ whichcote speaks of him in his first letter as a later acquaintance later that is to say than tuckney and hill both of whom had stood in the relation of tutor to him at emmanuel quote, but my friend of choice a companion of my special delight whom in my former years i have acquainted with all my heart i have told him all my thoughts and i have scarcely ever spoken or thought better of a man in respect of the sweetness of his spirit and the amiableness of his conversation Close quote. such were the four friends very dear to each other now in sixteen forty four settled together at cambridge whichcote was younger by about ten years than any of them and while the others had been consolidating their early principles in the labors and ambitions of the westminster assembly he had been spending his time in comparative quietness and meditation either at the university or in somersetshire where for a short while he held the living given him by his college his studies had been of a very different nature from theirs 
and gradually there had been forming in his mind trains of thought of which they knew nothing, and, as it turned out, were little able to comprehend. We have seen already that Tuckney professed to have early detected in him the budding of new opinions, or at least the use of a new language, and in the same passage he says to his former pupil, quote, I have heard that when you came to be a lecturer in the college, you in a great measure for the year laid aside other studies, and betook yourself to philosophy and metaphysics, which some think you were then so immersed in, that ever since you have been cast into that mould, both in your private discourses and preaching. Still, not even Tuckney could appreciate the divergency of thought and feeling which had been growing up in Whichcote's mind from the Westminster theological standard. To men of the class of the Westminster divines, in whom the spirit of dogmatic affirmation is strong, and the spirit of speculative insight weak, if not utterly wanting, few things are more difficult to understand than a theological standpoint different from their own, and, indeed, not only different, but incommensurate, stretching widely beyond their doctrinal particularism, and taking it up into a higher synthesis as of little or no account. They are out of their reckoning before the advance of a new line of thought, which overlooks rather than crosses or opposes their favorite dogmas, and starts on a fresh career. On the other hand, a mind like Whichcote's, meditative rather than polemical, speculative rather than dogmatic, does not court notice for its growing light, but adapts itself as far as possible to the theological atmosphere and associations surrounding it. He was far too wise and broad-minded to be intent merely on the assertion of his own views, and not to feel that all changes of opinion which are really worth promoting must be gradual and spring organically from the natural decay of pre-existing modes of thought. There is no evidence, therefore, that at first the four divines did not work cordially together, and seem to themselves to be pursuing the same objects. But gradually the change in Whichcote made itself felt. The new tone of his preaching began to stir the university mind, and to awaken distrust amongst his colleagues and old friends. How long the fire smoldered before it burst forth we cannot tell. But at length a commencement sermon, preached by Whichcote as vice-chancellor in the autumn of 1651, drew from Tuckney, acting evidently not only for himself but also for his friends Hill and Arrowsmith, and probably others, the vigorous remonstrance contained in his first letter. The background of personal feeling is very noticeable in the letters, and the air of the old tutor gives here and there a curious piquancy to the tone of discussion. Tuckney opens with an allusion to the gossip and discussion which Whichcote's teaching had for some time excited. It had been said that he and his friends dealt disingenuously with the provost of kings in speaking against his opinion without privately remonstrating with him. Though I do not fancy, he says, quote, as some others, that affected word ingenuous, and I wish the thing itself were not idolized, to the prejudice of saving grace, yet if I must use the word, truly, sir, I desire to be so ingenuous with you, as out of that ancient and still continued love I bear you, to have leave to tell you that my heart hath been much exercised about you, and that especially since your being vice-chancellor I have seldom heard you preach, but that something hath been delivered by you, and that so authoritatively, and with the big words, sometimes of divinest reason, and sometimes of more than mathematical demonstration, that hath very much grieved me, and I believe others with me, and yesterday as much as any time. I pass by many things in your sermon, and crave leave to note three or four. One. Your second position, that all those things wherein good men differ may not be determined from Scripture, and that it in some places seems to be for the one part, and in some places for the other, 
I take to be unsafe and unsound. 2. Your first advice, that we would be confined to scripture words and expressions, in which all parties agree, and not press other forms of words which are from fallible men, and this would be for the peace of Christendom, I look at as more dangerous, and verily believe that Christ by his blood never intended to purchase such a peace, in which the most orthodox, for that word I must use, though it be nowadays stomached, with papists, Arians, Socinians, and all the worst of heretics, must be all put into a bag together, and let them hold and maintain their own, though never so damnable heresies. Yet as long as they agree with us in scripture expressions, they must be accorded with. And yet, three, your second advice gives your ingenuous man liberty to propound his own different conceptions, and it may be to brand the contrary opinion with the black mark of divinity taught in hell, which will take away as much peace as the former advice promised to give us. The libertas profetandi, in most that ever pressed it, did semper aliquid monstri alere. And when I discern whose footsteps appear in these two advices, I am very sorry to see Dr. Whichcote, whom I so much love and honor, to tread in them. Of both these advices, what ground there was from the text, I leave indifferent men to judge. Sir, your heart, I believe, was full of them, and that was the reason of that so importune propounding of them. 4. Your discourse about reconciliation, that it does not operate on God but on us, that a nobis nascitur, etc., is divinity which my heart riseth against. To say that the ground of God's reconciliation is from anything in us, and not from his free grace, freely justifying the ungodly, is to deny one of the fundamental truths of our gospel that derives from heaven, which I bless God lieth near to my heart. It is dearer to me than my life, and therefore you will pardon me in this my bolder paresia and freeness, in which, if I have exceeded, you will easily impute an oversight to the straits of an hour which I had to write this letter and a copy of it. And, sir, although your speech and answers the last commencement were in the judgment of abler men than myself against my commencement position the former year, and your first yesterday advice directly against my commencement sermon, and what you delivered yesterday about reconciliation, if I mistake not, flatly against what I have preached for you in Trinity Pulpit, yet in holy reverence I call God to witness that all this I have laid aside, nor hath it put any quickness into my pen. But zeal for God's glory and truth, desire that young ones may not be tainted, and that your name and repute may not be blemished, and that myself with your other friends may not be grieved, but comforted and edified by your ministry, and so may have more encouragement to attend upon it, have been the weights upon my spirit that thus set the wheel a-going. There is something delightful in the whiff of personal feeling that mingles with Tuckney's orthodox zeal. No doubt he was honestly distressed by Whichcote's opinions. The footsteps which appear in them are too marked not to have alarmed a less sensitive Calvinistic conscience. But, moreover, it is plain that he was personally aggrieved. Whichcote's utterances had been flatly in contradiction of his own, and this was more than the most tolerant orthodoxy could stand. One who had assisted at the Westminster Assembly, and who had probably given his earliest theological instructions to the intrepid preacher, could not be expected to bear such an interference. The human impatience of contradiction, beyond question, helps wonderfully at all times the divine sense of orthodoxy. Whichcote's reply is marked by humility, and yet he keeps to his point with dignity and force. He thanks Tuckney for his plain dealing, but he feels bound to examine the question betwixt them. He has always had his former tutor, quote, in very high esteem. I have borne you reverence beyond what you do or can imagine, 
having in me a loving and gentle sense of my first relation to you and of all men alive i have least affected to differ from you or to call in question either what you have done or said or thought but your judgment i have regarded with reverence and respect i do not i cannot forget my four first years education in the university under you and i think i have principles by me i then received from you Close quote. he then acknowledges that lately he had been sensible of an abatement of former familiarity and openness he had attempted to make a discovery of the matter but he had been met with reservedness and therefore he had been content that time should lead into a good understanding but now he was heartily glad that the cordolium had been discovered and he was willing to be reproved if he was really in error Quote, blessed be the man whosoever he be that confutes that error i heartily pray that no man may receive an opinion from me but only abide in the truth Close quote. first he defends the matter of his commencement speech as having been in his mind and duly considered long before Tuckney delivered his speech. Seven years before, he says, that is, at his very first settling at Cambridge, he had preached the same views concerning natural light or the use of reason, and therefore he had no intention of merely saying anything in opposition to Tuckney. Indeed, he added, quote, I took not offense at your question, but was well enough satisfied in your replication and defense of it, thinking, if we differed in some expression, yet we agreed in sense and meaning. As to his sermon, he explains fully the positions he had maintained, as he finds them written in his notes. He is persuaded that truly all good men substantially agree in all things saving, and that there are indeterminate questions in reference to which Scripture seems to countenance the different views that may be taken of them. All that is ultra et citra scripturam, he says, must be pronounced fallible. This is to him the foundation of Protestancy. All who agree in scripture forms of words, acknowledging that the meaning of the Holy Ghost in them is true, should forbear one another, and not impose their own either sense or phrase. All Protestants hold, he maintains, that quilibet Christiano concedetur judicium discretionis, against the Pope's usurpation of judex infallibilis visibilis in rebus fidei. He admits that his heart was full of these truths, for his head had been possessed with them many years, even so long back as when he had disputed in the college chapel at Emmanuel. On the subject of reconciliation he enters at length, the effect of his explanation being to show that he had no intention of undervaluing the free grace of God, but only sought to bring out the necessity of Christ's work being recognized as not only something without us, but also within us. For reconciliation betwixt God and us is not usually as betwixt parties mutually incensed, where secret enmity may still remain but real, to the effect of taking away all our enmity and making us godlike. Quote, For God's acts are not false, overly imperfect. God cannot make a vain show, God being perfectly under the power of goodness cannot deny himself, because if he should, he would depart from goodness, which is impossible to God. Therefore we must yield, be subdued to the rules of goodness, receiving stamps and impressions from God, and God cannot be further pleased than when goodness takes place. They therefore deceive and flatter themselves extremely, who think of reconciliation with God by means of a Saviour acting upon God in their behalf, and not also working in or upon them to make them godlike. In reply, Tuckney sends a lengthened letter, entering into all the points betwixt them. Reciprocating the affection expressed towards him by his old pupil, he yet returns to the concern entertained by himself and others as to the general tone of Whichcote's preaching. They are grieved, he says, significantly, quote, 
by a vein of doctrine which runs up and down in many of your discourses and in those of some others of very great worth whom we very much honor and whom you head some think taking up once more the commencement speech he expresses more fully his dislike of the manner in which the speaker like so many others lately had cried up reason and made use of the saying the spirit of man is the candle of the lord etc a favorite expression of Whichcoats. this saying he holds has no relation to the truths of supernatural or evangelical theology nor is the protestant principle of private judgment while true against the pope's pretended claims to be held as superior to the rule of scripture but in subordination to it a true believer should have something above a collier's faith a proverbial phrase which seems to have been current amongst the theological disputants of the time footnote fides carbonaria the phrase is used also by whichcote and by arrowsmith in his tactica sacra End of footnote. yet faith is not to be resolved into reason but held distinct directed to its proper object and governed by its proper authority the divine mind in scripture the question of good men agreeing on fundamentals in all things saving is rediscussed, but without any further light being thrown upon it tuckney could of course urge from his point of view that the value of such an agreement depended entirely upon the questions which it included and it was easy to add with ironical effect quote, i believe those fundamental saving things are in some men's judgments but very few close quote. He cannot admit that men agreeing in scripture forms of words really do or can agree to any purpose so long as they hold contradictory assertions. He even goes the length of saying that men's Christianity must be judged by their opinions rather than by their lives. Quote, when heretics of old and divers of late times have been sober and temperate, nec sine larva sume pietatis, I think that we should look rather to their doctrines than their persons. Close quote. In conclusion, Tuckney makes a fuller confession of all the uneasiness he and others have been under as to Whichcote's mode of preaching. The philosophical, rational style, which he had introduced in contrast to the spiritual, plain, powerful ministry for which Cambridge had been distinguished. Some are ready to think, he adds, quote, that your great authors you steer your course by are Dr. Field, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Hammond, all three very learned men the middle sufficiently obscure and both he and the last i must needs think too corrupt footnote dr thomas jackson who was for some time vicar of st nicholas newcastle then president of corpus christi college oxford and who died dean of peterborough in sixteen thirty eight is a significant name in the history of english theology coleridge classifies him with the latitudinarian divines of the seventeenth century but he had no connection with the Cambridge school, and cannot be said to have definitely influenced any of its members, notwithstanding Tuckney's statements. There is, at the same time, much of the same mode of thought in Jackson, and his writings are well deserving of attention, especially A Treatise on Justifying Faith from My Study in Corpus Christi College, April 1615, and A Treatise of the Divine Essence and Attributes in Two Parts from My Study in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, November twentieth, 1627 field and his valuable work of the church sixteen o six to sixteen ten are comparatively well known field is in many respects a liberal churchman his definitions of heresy and of schism are not greatly dissimilar from those of hales and jeremy taylor but he is of an earlier school of thought and does not seem to have influenced any of our divines End of footnote. whilst you were fellow here you were cast into the company of very learned and ingenious men 
who, I fear, at least some of them, studied other authors more than the scriptures, and Plato and his scholars above others, in whom I must needs acknowledge, from the little insight I have into them, I find many excellent and divine expressions. And as we are wont more to listen to and wonder at a parrot speaking a few words than a man that speaks many more and more plainly, and all intelligibly, so whilst we find such gems in such dunghills, where we less expected them, we have been too much drawn away with admiration of them. And hence in part hath run a vein of doctrine, which divers very able and worthy men, whom from my heart I much honour, are, I fear, too much known by. The power of nature in morals too much advanced. Reason hath too much given to it in the mysteries of faith, a recta ratio much talked of, which I cannot tell where to find. Mind and understanding is all, heart and will little spoken of. The decrees of God questioned and quarrelled, because, according to our reason, we cannot comprehend how they stand with his goodness, which, according to your phrase, he is under the power of. Those are philosophers and other heathens, much fairer candidates for heaven than the scriptures seem to allow of, and they, in their virtues, preferred before Christians overtaken with weaknesses. A kind of moral divinity minted, only with a little tincture of Christ added. Nay, a platonic faith unites to God. Inherent righteousness so preached, as if not with the prejudice of imputed righteousness, which hath sometimes very unseemly language given it, yet much said of the one, and very little or nothing of the other. This was not Paul's manner of preaching. We have quoted so far, because we could not have, from the Puritan view, a better, and in some respects more vivid account, of Whichcote's theological position, and the points where it separated from the Westminster Standard. We shall afterwards more fully consider this position, but it deserves to be noticed in the meantime how entirely new, or as would now be said, neological, it is considered by Tuckney. It is not merely special differences which he feels to separate him from some of his old friends at Cambridge, but the plane of thought is obviously different in the two cases. The whole view of the nature of religion and of its relation to philosophy and morals is in question betwixt the Platonic party and himself. The Puritan divine sees this, and at the same time is unable to see any good in the forward movement of thought. He feels the theological ground on which he has been long standing failing him, and he has no courage to try the new ground. It offers to him no prospect of security. The old forms of the truth are to him the only possible truth of God, and therefore, he says in conclusion, he and his friends cannot desert it, though we are but little able to maintain it. He mourns over the growth of opinions which he cannot share, and which appear to him to have interrupted the good work to which he looked forward with encouragement when he settled at Cambridge. Great as was his hope of help from the company and assistance of friends whom he so much honoured and loved, so great, on the contrary, has been his trouble of spirit in such an unhappy disappointment. End of chapter 2, part 1